0: Hello, second liners and embodiments of evil and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. Our guest today, gang, this, she's just one hell of a film writer, uh, specializing in genre cinema. She was the news editor of the late lamented AV Club from 2014 to 2019, and a senior editor of that site from 2019 to 2022. Um, and then it just died. It was really sad. Uh, these days, you can find her byline at Vulture, Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, IndieWire, Polygon, and RogerEbert.com. She's also a film programmer at Chicago's gorgeous, world-famous Music Box Theater, and shorts programmer for the Overlook Film Festival. Here she is, the one, the only, Katie Reif. Hi, Katie.
1: Hello. I'm directly in the middle. I'm (laughs) looking both ways that's both of true
0: you yeah so we got it you're you're the you're at the yes. uh, you're the spectator in this particular tennis match uh speaking to us <laughs>
1: or i'm the net i'm the net <laughs> uh
0: speaking to us from chicago of course um thank you so much for doing this you're one of my just my very favorite writers and it's just a dream to have you um let's get right to it what year did you choose to talk about with us and why
1: well any year from the 1970s is going to really work for me but mm-hmm. I went with 1978 because I feel as like a lot of the threads of things that we love about the 70s were really uh, well I'm going to I'm going to mix my metaphor immediately Do there it. the fruits the fruits were ripening in the late <laughs> 70s you know it was the heyday of like films that were dis- considered disposable trash at the time. And now we go back and look at them and are like, my God, they mm-hmm. paid attention to every single lighting. setup." <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was actual so,
0: texture to the image. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And it was a time when you could still get, you know, like very bleak adult dramas, perhaps about auto workers in mm-hmm. Detroit mm-hmm. Um, made as well. So there were just, and it was also, Uh, You know, the heyday of uh, the Shaw brothers over in Hong Kong. It was just a really exciting. The late seventies were a really exciting time, I think, for cinema globally and a lot of different things I like in cinema. So well, that's why I chose nineteen seventy eight.
0: Well, sure. And your specialty, as I mentioned, is genre cinema. We talk a lot on this show about what 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 you're talking about, about New Hollywood era, about the confluence of factors that that led to so many of these great movies. Narrowing a bit to your specialty, why do you think it was such a rich period? for genre and exploitation cinema and, and all of those films that hold up so well.
1: Well, I think uh, it's a a rich period uh, in America specifically because Mm -hmm. you had, you had a whole separate ecosystem. Right. Of, um, Of theaters that doesn't really exist anymore. In more rural and suburban areas, it would be the drive in. Mm -hmm. But in urban areas you had the grindhouse theater, which is a type of theater that doesn't really exist anymore. Sure. Um, and if I may for a moment, grindhouse is the type of theater and exploitation is the type of movie. Like they're called grindhouses because they were open twenty four out seven and so they would just grind the prints out all the time, and that's why they were called grindhouses. Um, but the type of picture itself is exploitation. And I think exploitation is really fascinating because it it's really just, it it's like the id of America, number one. <laughs> and well number said. two, it, <laughs> well, some of the most interesting, um, you know, horror and exploitation movies of this time. Uh, a movie that we didn't, we're not going to talk about because I don't love it like as a film but it's very emblematic of what I'm talking about. I spit on your grave came out mm, in 1978. Okay. I think that that, that film and films like it, rape revenge movies, just as an example, are really, really interesting because they are about backlash to feminism. Right. They are men being absolutely fucking terrified of women's liberation. Birthing, right. You know, like, I just think when you think about films as sort of like, you know, the nightmares of society projected on the cave wall, I think that, genres like horror and exploitation or where you see those come out in like their truest and darkest forms.
0: That totally makes sense. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I've talked about this a little bit on the show before I'll admit to being frankly, a little late to, to genre and exploitation cinema in terms of my Mm. particular film education um, that I came of age in an era where it was still uh, cool to look down on those, you know, and as like a child Mm. of, 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 you know, a kid who was, Really, probably raised as much by Gene and Roger as I was by my own parents. Like to to sort of sneer at the slasher movie and and a lot of those forms. And then this sort of astonishing moment, you know, whenever this this book came out, not terribly long ago, of reading um, Jason Zinneman's book that that really is like the easy writer's raging bulls for horror movies, and realizing that, like you said, that it was this entire ecosystem. Of that had its own auteurs and its own thematic concerns Mm -hmm. and its own style. Um, I take it that you came to this stuff a little sooner than I did. What was your sort of? What was your introduction to this stuff?
1: Well, okay. So my thing was that I first got into movies. I was already pretty well entrenched in like the punk rock scene in mm. the town where I came from, Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. By the time I got into movies, and uh, by the time I went to college and went to film school, I was already pretty well steeped in that punk rock sensibility. So, of course, you know, the first one of the very first filmmakers I was drawn to was John Waters, and mm. he he didn't make exploitation movies per se, but definitely had a. Um, uh, dis- healthy disregard for <laughs> um, yeah. the rules, a very we were supposed to do. A specific and- <laughs>
0: sensibility, a very specific sensibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So I guess just the disreputable made the most sense to me. Uh, and also, I was very interested in that time in um, found footage mm-hmm. filmmaking uh, you know, like making like super cuts and things like that. I was really into that in like the mid two thousands when YouTube was first coming along. Sure. And from there, it's a natural extension into you end up watching a lot of kind of bargain basement stuff because, uh, you know, you're, you're interested in just cultural trash, mm-hmm. you know, it is the culture that, that people throw away. I've always been very interested in that. And I guess over time, like when I was in my twenties, I sort of, gravitated more towards the 70s aesthetic um, and so that that led to being intensely interested in horror films from the 70s mm-hmm. and it all just kind of uh, built from there I guess you know
0: that totally makes sense Katie right this is like
2: interviewing myself <laughs> I don't know this is if I was gonna be a guest on this show, I would probably pick like a super genre maybe horror film I would pick some European thing. You know, then mm-hmm. make people read some subtitles. I would pick a documentary. I would pick a Kung Fu movie. I, I like, I was looking at this list and I was just like, this is the closest anybody's gotten to, if I was, a, to what I would do if I was a get- I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it.
1: Well, you've got excellent taste then. I, <laughs> I will say that the films that I picked for this week's, uh, you know, this episode is very much in line with like my kind of taste, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I was telling uh, Jason off mic before the show that, like, I feel like anybody who has any kind of specialty, like, I know a lot about horror movies. I cover a lot of horror movies, like, especially now, like, I go to all the festivals and I write up the, midnight. you know, I do, like, Midnighter uh, reviews for the trades and stuff like that. It's kind of the niche that I'm in, and I'm very happy in it, and I know a lot about it, but, like, I... I do sit and watch Chantal Ackerman movies at home just for my own, you know, fun and enrichment. Um, (laughs) So I would say that, yeah, this spread covers pretty much, like, I think I have a wide um, taste and this covers a lot of it.
0: Excellent. Well, we are going to explore that taste and those choices in depth in just a moment. Before we do, we're going to find out a little bit about what was going on in the world outside of the grindhouse in the year of our Lord 1978. Here's Mike with headlines.
2: 1978, the core of a crumbling empire. America was over. Am I right?
0: Let's go. New York was a shithole. Everything
2: was destroyed. Yeah. 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 The Sex Pistols were touring the South. I mean, <laughs> we had no control over anything anymore. In oh May, God. the U.S. Senate agreed that the whole ass country of Panama would be allowed to run the canal that is very much in their territory. <laughs> nice guys, huh? Officially, nice of for several decades before then, the country of Panama was actually two separate landmasses with a stripe of the United States running through the middle of it. What fucking nonsense. Conservatives made sure the treaty included a clause that we could, quote unquote, protect the canal. Hmm. 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 I think they could have used the word invade, but they mm -hmm. went with the word protect Mm -hmm. uh, at our discretion. And and look, everything has been more or less fine since. Mm -hmm. They're fine. (laughs) The Panamanians Mm -hmm. are doing great. Totally. This is all bullshit. All scare tactics and yes. nonsense. In Everything. additional Senate news, the gray hairs agreed to sign the SALT Treaty. I'm just not happy with them in 70. I just have a <laughs> lot of shit to talk about the Senate in 70. I think a lot
1: of people did. Well,
2: fair enough, right?
1: There's a general mood of discontent. I
2: yeah. just like they get so much credit for such stupid shit. They, mm-hmm. they, signed, they agreed to sign the SALT Treaty. Right, which helped to control and get rid of some nuclear weapons. Good. One of the yes. guys who signed was Senator John Thinnis, who President Carter described as a profile in courage. hmm Because he agreed to have the bar is so low. So fucking low. Bravo. Yeah. And Bravo, I don't even Senna. I'm not sure they're crossing it now. Mm-hmm. Uh some good news, the video game Space Invaders was introduced in nineteen seventy eight, and I literally ah. literally played that fucking game yesterday at Chuck E. Cheese and it still rocks.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. I have a Galaga or Galaga. I I still don't yeah. actually know how to pronounce it. Good I have a shit. Galaga in my home. Like I have one of those, like, you know, nostalgia for boomer, like deck, you know-up <laughs> like, joints. The stand-up
1: joints. I got it. And you know what?
0: <laughs> it's still the only video game I'm good at. So I feel you on the Space Invaders love. My
1: parents thought that video games would wrap my brain, so I wasn't allowed to play them when I was young. And uh jokes on that because I got into film. <laughs> Look
0: how rotten my brain is now, mom and dad. Yeah, it's just pouring out my ears.
1: <laughs>
2: GPS and mobile phones were invented in nineteen seventy eight, but they weren't quite ready for prime time. They were still sure. like they were they worked sort of the same way they work now, but mm-hmm. they were like billions of dollars and you had to have, you know, a giant warehouse. So Yeah but it was the future was coming a gallon of gas averaged 63 cents and you could buy a house for $54,000 god damn all right chips the love boat and three's company were dominating the airwaves it was not an era of good tv i don't care how fucking nostalgic <laughs> no, you want to act those were this was all not garbage. good television all garbage. and you're allowed to like it i don't give a fuck if you like it i don't, I'm not saying that i'm just saying these are objectively terrible expressions of any however yes. you want to call them art yeah, uh, <laughs> and you know what else is on TV? Then Wheel of Fortune. Holy! How shit. How is that possible? Is really? How is that possible?
0: It was not the same like host. Same people? Though. No, it couldn't That's have been.
2: That's the Sajak thing,
0: though, right? No, that is the Sajak show, but Sajak was not the original host of that. I he was. Let's see. The original host of Wheel of Fortune. Oh, oh no! Oh, I wish we didn't know this. <laughs> no. Oh God. Well, now you
1: have to tell us. It was the 70s.
0: Charles Herbert Chuck Woolery, the <laughs> absolutely brainwormed MAGA Republican <laughs> Chuck Woolery, wow. was was the original host of uh, of Wheel of Fortune. Oh, uh, well, at least
1: he can read, I guess. People love
0: that show. This just, yeah, they sure do. They sure do. Wool- Woolery left in '81 and was replaced by Sajak. So there you have it. I don't have an
2: answer to this question. I just want needed to present it to the world. I just needed everyone to know that this is somehow a thing that we have embraced for.
0: People love, you know, turning letters and uh, uh, guessing at the puzzle, I guess. that's That's there the best go. explanation
1: I've got. I'm just totally pulling this off the top of my head, but I feel like the secret to Wheel of Fortune's success is you can be kind of half paying attention and look over and <laughs> like feel like <laughs> the answer yep. and then go back to what you were doing. Even and if you're that, a contestant,
0: that, you can do that, I feel like.
1: <laughs> exactly. You know, you only have to half pay attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this
0: is
2: why we put things out in the world, because the answers come back. Yep. Let's finish on some good news. Uh, the world's first test tube baby. We don't call it that anymore. That's not how we call it anymore.
0: (laughs) That died with Robin Harris, I'm afraid. That was actually pretty common,
2: like, scientific sort of language at the time. Now known as IVF. Uh, The Mm -hmm. first baby born by IVF was born in Oldham Hospital in Lancashire, England. Miss Louise Brown is still alive, and we wish her well. All right. We love babies.
1: Good job, Louise. On this year,
2: on this show. And however you decide to have them, we are fucking, I'm behind it. I love it. There we go shout out to Miss Louise Brown and uh, all the test tube babies in our world there you that's go that's headlines <laughs> thank you
0: Mike Katie Reif you ready to do a top five
1: yeah let's go top five
0: Okay, so this is exciting because anytime the guest brings us a new organizing principle for the top five, you know we love that. You know, if if you listen to the show, you know what a fan we are of the, the outside-the-box top five thinking. Katie, what is the organizing principle of your, uh, of your top five?
1: Okay, so my top five is ranked in descending order of formalism. So <laughs> we're starting with the... We're starting with a very rigorously formalistic, controlled European art film. And we're going to just keep going Mm -hmm. until we get to 16 millimeter handheld.
0: There we go. All right. So what then (laughs) is the first and most formal film in your top five for 1978?
1: Uh, The first and most formal film is Les Rendezvous d'Anna.
0: Moi je suis les verres au fond du café. J'ai bien trop à faire pour pouvoir rêver. Et dans ce décor banal à pleurer, il me semble encore les voir arriver. Ils sont arrivés se tenant par la main.
1: The Meanings of Anna by the great Chantal Ackerman. This was her follow-up to Jean uh, Dealman, mm-hmm. And uh, I... I a lot of her work is uh, obviously semi autobiographical. I have to assume this one is as well because it's about a woman filmmaker traveling alone across Europe presenting her film. It'd be weird as cities. fuck if it
0: wasn't. It would be so strange <laughs> if it was totally manufactured out of whole cloth. She's like, no, I live none of this.
1: She's like, I don't yeah. go to screenings. Why would I do that? That is something Chantal Ackerman would have said. She though. would. She, I, you've seen that m- famous quote from yeah. her, right? Yeah. Oh, which one? <laughs> there's this famous interview with her where uh they were asking her about uh the this tedious conversation about the length of films has been happening since gene dealman came out of course and it's an interview with her about gene dealman and someone says like aren't you worried about wasting people's time and she's like no i love it i love the idea of wasting <laughs> yes. people's time yes. and i'm like fuck yeah chantal like that's why she's my favorite because yes. she just didn't give a single fuck and i, have I appreciate seen that. her for that <laughs>
2: I mean, I think when you're describing like watching a movie that way to a filmmaker, they have the right to tell you to go fuck yourself, right? Yeah, right,
1: right. And she was the type of person who would tell you to go fuck yourself. Absolutely. And I appreciate (laughs) that.
0: Absolutely. No, it's a conversation and a complaint that I've never understood because it's like, number my my two rejoinders to that are always, number one, this is not a trip to the dentist chair. You're like, enjoy, you're like watching art. Yeah, hopefully You're, you're
1: having a good time. Yes.
0: And number two, do you know how long every single fucking Televised football game is get the fuck out of here complaining (laughs) about how long movies are.
1: Um, anyway, yeah,
0: the the meeting Savannah.
1: Another thing I really like about Chantal Ackerman is she was always very thoughtful about like the form of her movies would always pair really beautifully with the content, Mm -hmm. and um. So she is in her very, she is in her long take mode here, like she was with Gene Dealman. Mm -hmm. Um, This film is obviously not quite as long. Mm -hmm. It is, I believe, about two hours. It's, It's, you know, fairly standard. Two and uh, a
0: few. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, there are things about this movie that I feel very deeply, like emotions that I identify with very deeply Mm -hmm. in it, and the way that she frames it. And the way that she cuts it uh-huh. conveys this specific emotion in a way that is really beautiful and powerful. And like I said, it's just this beautiful marriage of technique and intent. I think that Chantal Ackerman could bring those two things together uh-huh. to really like convey a feeling better than almost anybody. I think she was just really miraculously at that. And in this one, it it's about feeling alone in a crowded room, even oh. though the character is often alone. She, she's rarely in crowded spaces. She's usually alone in the space, but it, it conveys this feeling of, you know, Anna, the filmmaker, she's popular. She's asked to go around to all these different places and present her film. She's kind of a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. she has a lot of friends. She has lovers. She has all these people who want to be part of her life, but they don't really care. They, they want something from her. Yeah like she, she's surrounded by people who want something from her, but nobody really cares about like her. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, she's very lonely and isolated. Mm-hmm. And I feel that, you know, like that's sort of the nature of like, I imagine filmmakers may feel this way too, because, you know, their writing process is solid. There are solitary aspects to filmmaking, even though it is a collaborative medium. Um, but like with writing it, it that's mm-hmm. it really captures the feeling of sitting alone in your room writing something sending it out in the world having no idea if anybody ever <laughs> sees it or hears it and yeah. then somebody talking at you about something you wrote mm-hmm. and not really giving a shit about you at all but <laughs> just talking at you about something you wrote like very intensely yeah that's a very specific feeling and yeah. i feel it watching the meetings of anna uh-huh. and i just think Chantal was a genius.
0: The other thing that I think it it captures in a way that I don't know I've ever seen in another movie is that incredible sequence where she takes the 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 she sort of this guy kind of picks her up slash she picks him up, takes him back mm-hmm. to the hotel. Um, sex is going to happen, and then it's not. Right. And the way that that scene captures how that can just happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. um is is sort of astonishing in its frankness and but like we've all been in that room before like we've all had that experience um but i but you it's not the kind of thing that anybody bothers to put into a movie because like we'd rather you know have a, a sort of a comical rejection or you know a
1: or a sex scene uh,
0: terribly romanticized, <laughs> over aestheticized <laughs> sex scene. Yes, uh, more often the 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 latter than the former, and that was extremely striking to me. That like y- I didn't expect that mm-hmm. scene to go that way, and it felt so incredibly uncomfortable and real, um, mm-hmm. and like she was really putting herself uh, out in that particular
1: sequence. And just the brand of alienation that she is um, exploring in this film. Mm. I think, you know, obviously, you know, it, it, it exists. It existed in like pre internet industrialized society, mm-hmm. but I think it is prescient about the way that we socialize on the internet a little bit too, I think. And mm. I'm thinking of a different scene. I'm thinking of the, the very last scene in the film where Anna gets home mm-hmm. from, you know, her trip. And she's listening to her answering machine messages. Oh, God. And there's, yeah, it's really, it's just her laying in bed, listening to her answering machine messages, but it is the most emotionally devastating scene. And it has so much to say about, like I was saying, that feeling of being surrounded by people, but being completely alone.
0: Beautifully said. All right. Well, that, uh, okay. So then what, Katie, would be the next least Formal. The next, step down. <laughs> the next least, but still very formal film in mm-hmm. your top five for
1: 1978. Well, this I don't think this is. The, I used to think this was the greatest horror film ever made. I have since downgraded it to number two. Okay, for reasons we can discuss another time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but this is by oh Hollywood's oh what a beautiful formalist. Oh, he's obsessed with Howard <laughs> Hawks, folks. Yep, and it shows. He just. Just the way that John Carpenter used mm-hmm. sound, image, editing, mm-hmm. like all of the formal elements of Halloween are used in just, I think such a wonderfully masterful way.
2: Halloween. I think he will come back. Halloween, the night he came home. Rated R.
1: Just the way he cuts the movie makes you scared. He really, it's like he's behind a keyboard, you know, playing notes, to use a very John Carpenter yeah. appropriate analogy. He yes. can play every single note to create exactly the effect that he wants from you. And it's, Maybe slightly less. Um, I put it below the meanings of Anna because I feel like Chantal Ackerman was going for something a little bit more profound. Sure. But <laughs> <laughs> and John Carpenter is using all of the formal tools in his kid as a director to create, you know, thrills. Yeah but he's so fucking good at it. And the craft in Halloween is so fucking incredible. Like you can um, the closet scene towards the end, you can go through that, Mm -hmm. you know, if not frame by frame, shot by shot and just use that as a lesson in how to create suspense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that from, from a formal perspective that, that has always struck me about this one, which was, I, I would note pointed out to me, By the aforementioned Roger Ebert in his four star review of Halloween Mm -hmm. is. Oh, and he
1: usually hated these type of movies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Foreground and background the specific Mm -hmm. ways in which he will either have something appear in the background for a shock or for dread or for suspense, or that he will move the camera to reveal something in the foreground to achieve those effects. Like this is a guy who's, who's, who's working on, he's making an exploitation movie. It's extremely low budget. It's a movie that's built from its title backwards. Um, But he is approaching all of it from from this incredibly rigorous, thoughtful, compositional uh, perspective.
1: That's the kind of tradition that he comes from. You know, like Howard Hawks was the same way, where it was very much about like, like they approach filmmaking uh, as, as a craft, you know, totally. the craftsman of the form.
2: Is it wrong to say that most of the time... When people talk about this movie in terms of form or formalism what they're talking about it they're talking about it as a starting point. But the way you're talking about it, Katie is as a as is not as a new form, but as an extension of existing form made by somebody who was openly reverent of those existing forms.
1: I would say that. Yeah, I mean, John Carpenter didn't invent any of the tricks that he's using in Halloween. I I would maybe a few of them, but I think when you talk about like classical suspense and form like he's definitely building on what came before him there yeah
2: why do you think it's more common to talk about this movie as the start of a form instead of the continuation or extension even
1: i mean i think because it was so hugely influential probably if i had to guess just because it was so big and so many people copy it There are people like, I mean, it's kind of dying out now, but about five years ago, a solid like 30 percent of horror movies that you would see new horror films that were coming out were just aping John Carpenter. He's like so many people ape him that I I think that maybe that's why people talk about him as a start as a starting point, even though, you know, like we were saying, like he was very much looking at like old Hollywood, uh, you know, masters to refine his form and his technique.
0: And I think what 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 people were imitating initially was the you know was the content of this one was the story exactly. of it. Um and and not right. the sort of the, the 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 intense uh slavishness to to form and to, to style. Um I think the yeah, sort of Yeah, and
1: like framing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Like,
1: Like, he put just so much more effort into, like, the framing of Halloween than you, quote unquote, had to. Right. And that, to me, is what shows him as, like, a, a true craftsman in that. You know, like if you had a carpenter can like make a shitty table, but they don't, they make a beautiful table because that's what they do. Yeah. You know? And, (laughs) and I think that's how John Carpenter approaches filmmaking. I agree. And the,
0: the sort of the rash (laughs) of imitators from Friday the 13th on down, weren't trying even to, to, to duplicate any of that. They were just, you know, mad killer, big knife, naked girls. That's, that's how, how, that's how Halloween made all that money. And that's actually not how Halloween made all that money.
1: Uh, Yeah. Well, it's part of it, you know, <laughs> but, but I really, fair,
0: fair. it's part of it. It is part of it. <laughs> it didn't um, hurt.
1: But, you know, I'm going to use a crude phrasing, mm-hmm. but, you know, like, I like all that stuff, you know, the thrills, the chills, all that stuff is great. But what I really get off on is the way that he, like, moves the camera and sets up his shots and edits and where he uses the music. Like that's the kind of stuff that I really get off on in Halloween. I, like it just gives totally. me it sends a tingle down my spine. I just love it so much.
0: Totally. And I can tell you too that it works no matter how you see it. Um that this Yes, is, I've
1: seen this movie probably 15 times and it works every single time.
0: i it's this may remarkable. be the single movie I have seen the most in my lifetime. Mm. Um the first time I saw it I was 12 or 13 years old I watched it on our local our local UHF station aired it I watched it on a black and white television in my room that was maybe a 15 inch screen like if that mm. And it totally fucking played. That was the first time I watched it. it scared the shit out of me. It was a network television airing like it was it was sanitized for television and it fucking mm-hmm. sang. I've watched it every mm-hmm. single Halloween season since and I've seen it projected yeah. in, in theaters. I've seen it in color and black and white. It always works. It always works. It just does.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I really love about it. And you know, there there's a lot to love about it all around, but that that's what I really, really get into and what I, I really respect and what keeps it fresh is the nuts and bolts of it are mm-hmm. are really, really solid.
0: Magnificent. Speaking of solid entertainments, uh what is the third film on your top okay. five for nineteen seventy eight, Katie?
1: So to kind of um down the middle Mm -hmm. in terms of like form Mm -hmm. I chose a movie that is all about discipline Mm -hmm. it is about (laughs) Mm self-discipline and it is about perseverance Mm -hmm. and it is a lesson that I've seen this movie a handful of times and every time I watched I'm like yeah I know slow and steady (laughs) sometimes I lack discipline in certain areas of my life and then I watched the 36th chamber of Shaolin And I go (laughs) Which is a film About (laughs) sustained effort (laughs) And self-discipline
0: He was the best He killed the rest The master killer The master of the martial kung fu art Revenge drove him on. Vengeance would be his. The Manchu warlords would pay for their crimes. See The Master Killer, the greatest artisan of kung fu. He is the best. The Master Killer, rated R from World Northall.
1: So in this one, like there is some formalism. This was directed by the great Lau Kar Lung, who mm-hmm. was one of the big Shaw Brothers directors in the late '70s. This was the era, the heyday of what you would call the pure kung fu movie. You know, there's mm-hmm. no wuxia. there's no, there's no like, um, no magic, no very little sword play. It is very much just about like hand to hand combat and kung fu and technique. Mm-hmm. And as such, these films. Like the shooting style, there is some like Lau Kar Lung did ha- use some style, particularly in the editing. But a lot of these films, like and in the fight scenes, you'll see this sometimes. They aren't cut basically at all. Like they'll right. use wide shots, and the and the the form and the technique is in the performers, mm-hmm. and they just have these performers do these very long, very intricate. Um, physical performances on screen. And I was revisiting this film earlier today because I hadn't seen it in a while. And I was watching it and Gordon Liu is the main character. Hell yes. Um, it, yes, this is sort of like the the Ur-Kung uh, Fu movie, I think. Like the ultimate Kung Fu movie. Mm-hmm. Number one, it's really fucking good. Um, you know, the performances in it are incredible. Like, I was watching it earlier today and thinking that Gordon Liu, like, he the way he performs with his body, like mm-hmm. very few people have any it's like Buster Keaton level physical performance coming yep. from this guy. Like, yep. like just what he can do with like the, t- like the tips of his fingers, to the tips of his toes, every single part of him has been considered and is disciplined and is like being in- intricate performance, physical performance happening there. And I really love it. And one thing I, I like about these classic, Kung Fu movies is that that's what they're about. That's what the movies really about is that performance, and so the the plot of it is sort of what we would consider the standard. And I think this is what makes it the Er Kung Fu movie is that it is about you know a guy whose master is killed and he has to train to get revenge. Yep, like it's very simple plot, but it's not really about the plot. It's about watching Gordon Liu do all this cool shit <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> on camera and it being mm-hmm. caught forever. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. No. And, and the, the sort
0: of the, the narrative structure of it is so genius because of, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's right there in the title. It's the 36 chambers, uh, you know? And so mm-hmm. it, it, what's fun about that is you get to, when you sort of get to that section of the movie, he's going into each of the chambers and doing different styles of fighting and mm-hmm. combat, like so, you know, there's swords in this one. Well, there's hand different hand parts of his body. Yes, yes.
1: It's, like my favorite chamber is the one where they tie, uh, they strap oh, knives god. under his oh, arms. Oh god! Oh god! Yeah. 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 So the challenge is it's to, it's to learn a uh, discipline in your arms. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they take knives and strap and beat your arms. So if you let your arms drop, you'll stab yourself in the side. Mm-hmm. And then you're supposed to carry these heavy buckets of water up a hill. Up an incline. And yeah. Yeah. Up a, yeah. A sharp incline and mm-hmm. dump out the buckets of water and then go get more. And you have to keep your arms up the whole time. And, um, you know, like, like my, my, arms are shaking just watching him do it. Oh my but, god. Uh, you you yeah. know
0: the, the, that's a fun game you can play at home when you're watching a kung fu movie like this <laughs> is the point at the training in which you would have killed yourself. Um that's Yeah, you would have just I, yeah,
1: yeah. I wouldn't have shown up. Are you kidding? I would never yeah. have shown up at Shaolin Temple. I no. know I don't have what it takes. I like. don't. I nor, do not
0: nor do I nor do I. No.
1: I, I would give up immediately.
0: <laughs> this was one of the ones on your list that I Shockingly, i had not ever seen before it's so sort of omnipresent in the culture that it's one of those ones that like oh i've seen the 36 chamber shallot and then you pop it in for the refresher watch you're like i've never seen the 36 chamber shallot and it's so entertaining it's so beautifully mounted he's goddamn incredible like and 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 like i think for a lot of people my age you know, Tarantino is hugely responsible for sort of knowing these names and knowing these faces. And so,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: his, yeah, his... Gordon
1: Lou's in the Kill Bill movies. Think,
0: yes. Twice. He has, he has, yeah. he has a yeah. ro- he's in the first one as one of the, 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 the crazy 88s. And then he, uh, in a nice turn of events is the training, um, uh, master well, in is, yeah. volume two. So yeah. I, I mean, haven't
1: seen the Kill Bill movies in probably...
0: 15 years I need to fix that. They're they they hold together pretty well. Um so yeah, I mean th- that kind of placement in that movie shows the sort of the reverence that he had. And then of course, this is also a movie that's that's very um well represented in the uh, in the Wu-Tang discography as well. Mike
1: Absolutely. Mike was
0: that what brought I you I love the
1: Wu-Tang, so I'm not mad. <laughs>
0: was that what brought you to this particular film, Michael?
2: Uh, no, Tuan brought me to this movie. This is hey. like, this is one of the ones he actually rented from the video store and didn't just sort of like wait for it to be on TV. Uh-huh. Cause I, this was a roommate that I had when I was 19, 20 and I really didn't know much about Kung Fu movies. And he was like personally offended <laughs> that I didn't, wasn't more familiar with Kung Fu movies. And so this is one of the ones that he showed me for the first time. Um, and it has been one of the easier ones to find yeah. just in terms yeah. of, of, you know, sort of different versions that have been made like DVD VHS and sort mm-hmm. of ubiquity of it bootlegs. I mean, I, how many thousands of bootlegs of this movie have I seen, <laughs> you know, so it's one of those ones that's been around, but yeah, the first person that showed it to me is Tuan and I sort of just didn't, you know, the Kung Fu movies I had seen before that were more sort of like early Jackie Chan Much more sort of indie film versions, you know. Yeah, this
1: is a studio movie. Sure is. I just didn't know that
2: anybody had made one so grandiose.
1: Yeah, it's kind of, it's the ultimate example, particularly of these, like, of the 70s. Like, you were talking about, Michael. Specifically, Shaw Brothers Studio, Hong Kong, mainstream kung fu movies specifically this is like the ultimate one and it might be the best one it's not my personal favorite my personal favorite came out i think the year after it was also gordon Liu and lao carlong it's called dirty ho and that one is (laughs) okay har 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 um it's easy
2: to remember that's that's what's so great about dirty ho it's easy to remember you're like yes oh that's right yes that movie
1: But it's actually a real. That one's actually very comedic. It's very light and comedic, and kind of takes that Buster Keaton analogy I made earlier and runs with it. And and uh, in that one, this one is a very like muscular, sweaty dude punching kind of movie. Mm -hmm. But Dirty Ho is very like light. Like there's a whole scene where these two guys are fighting, and nobody's supposed to be knowing they're fighting, and so they're they're just it's just their hands. Like their hands are the only things that are moving, (laughs) and the rest of them are still and it's just like really cool it's a different kind of thing but this is like a dude sweaty punching kind of yes kung fu movie. yes it's a very tough badass movie
0: sorry you you stating that you, that the number two and the number one reminds me, we never circle back what is the what is the newly an, or more recently anointed number one horror movie above halloween
1: oh the texas chainsaw massacre
0: there we have it okay the Good.
1: social import is just i mean that's a whole other podcast right
0: yes it is <laughs> <laughs> all right well now that we've now that we've uh we've shaken off some of the formalism now that we're a little more loose-limbed what is the Uh number uh four movie on your top five for 78
1: okay so my number four movie is blue collar Paul Schrader's directorial debut
0: hell yes
2: from the author of taxi driver comes blue collar The story of three men who spend their whole lives working to catch up.
0: There's going to be some changes, man, in the union, big changes. Everybody know what the plant is? The
2: plant just shot for plantation. The American Dream. If you're rich, you can buy it. If you're anything else, you've got to fight for it. Blue Collar.
1: This movie, I think, captures that kind of, like, Carter malaise mm-hmm. better than most movies, and um I love a Paul Schrader s- script. Mm-hmm. Ooh boy, nobody <laughs> writes in their diary in this movie, but like it's okay. <laughs> all, <laughs> I'll <let> it go.
0: <laughs> all the other indicators, all the other, uh, all watermarks. the other
1: Schrader things are yeah. in there. Yeah, and it is just like I love the performance of uh, the main cast cast is incredible yeah uh yeah koto is my favorite of those three but i also really like richard pryor's performance in this yeah. he's really playing a very like venal mm-hmm. kind of character just uh, just a snake you know mm-hmm. this guy will do anything to get ahead but the way that the movie is like the world he lives in and the circumstances he lives in you're like yeah buddy get yours mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because like just the 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 yeah, it's, it's a very bleak film, like I said. And so it's like these, these three guys work at an auto plant in Detroit. And I believe they actually shot it. it yep. They definitely shot. I don't know if they shot in the factory, but they definitely shot on location in yep. Detroit. Like, yep. this movie looks like Detroit. Mm-hmm. And um, so they decide to pull a job at their union office because their union office is just as bad as management. And um, they end up not getting as much money as they thought they were going to get. But then there are complications. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good summary of the plot. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Blue collar. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. No. Well, Mike, we talked very recently on the show about working class cinema. And I think this might be like the most working class movie of this era. Like it is that is its, its explicit topic from top to bottom um and and it's and does so in a way that is explicit and pointed without somehow ever feeling really didactic uh it's a neat trick if you can pull it off there's
2: a sort of thing too where like you know robert redford trying to make a movie about the working class just somehow isn't the same as paul schrader and richard pryor doing it you know right and I think the first time I saw this was watch was prepping for your book. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I had seen all of Pryor's stand up inside and out, you know, and had seen a lot of the sort of 80s movies, but didn't really know that he had done this working. Yeah. This isn't the only one, you know, yeah. but like his ability to make a working class hero. That's not a pedantic douchebag. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's just very few people who could do that then or since.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I love about this is, you know, this was a famously sort of contentious shoot. This was Schrader's directorial debut, and he didn't really know how to how to control a set or really know how to make a movie Mm. just yet. And also just sort of started contentious, like started shit between his actors kind of on purpose, uh, because he knew that that tension between them was going to translate to their relationships on screen. Um, it is
1: a major theme in the movie. The yeah. way that like the man pits the working men against mm-hmm. one another.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Directors are such dickheads. <laughs> <laughs>
0: he wasn't poking me in the eye. I think the movie's great. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Katie, yeah. that, that brings us to the end of our, our top five. Yes. What, is the, what is the final and uh, most formally loosey goosey title On your list.
1: Now we have a movie that is literally about going with the flow. (laughs) 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 Always for Pleasure by the great documentarian Les Blank.
0: See, a lot of people, when they go to eat crawfish, the proper way to do it, you put it underneath your tongue with your teeth, you squeeze and fall out, then you suck the heads. But a lot of people that would eat crawfish, that's not too familiar with it. They would break it, then have to peel it and turn it around like that. Then squeeze and then pull it out with their fingers. Otherwise, if we was out eating us, I could eat maybe four to five crawfish to maybe y'all one.
1: I love mm-hmm. Les Blank totally. My favorite of his movies is one called uh, "Gap Tooth Women." That's really wonderful. But he just he just really had this skill for kind of celebrating the sort of simple pleasures of life and oh, this yeah. one looks at that through the lens of Mardi Gras in New Orleans and it was just Mardi Gras last weekend so it seems yeah. like an appropriate pick to have this on the podcast today yeah um and so what it is is Les Blank would work with these small crews and I was watching uh like a bonus extra for Always for Pleasure on Criterion Channel and his sound editor was saying that he had or the sound person said he had like the strongest arms of anyone she had ever met because he would shoot, like I was saying earlier, a uh, handheld 16 millimeter for like, like they would just go out mm. and go out in these parades and they mm. would drink with people and hang out with people and just to get him to loosen up a little bit. And so he'd be like half drunk in the street in like a sea of people. And then he would just be like now, and then just start. Cause you couldn't, film continuously you were shooting on film you right. didn't have enough time so he just had this like apparently this amazing ability to just intuitively know when to start filming and really strong arms mm. <laughs> this is another theme in this list mm-hmm. um so he would you know so it it would be watchable you know yeah. like this it, it doesn't look shaky the shots don't look no all that shaky you know he did a good job with that and um, this movie, I love it a lot because I love New Orleans a lot and I love parades, I love Les Blanc, I love that kind of like earthy, you know, like that that earthy, I I guess peasant, you know, like when it, that medieval peasants around the feasting table kind mm. of vibe runs through Les Blanc's work and mm-hmm. I really... I believe in living that way you know yeah. i agree with the philosophy of life in this film which is that you're here now so you might as well have a good time there you and go and it covers one of what i think is one of the coolest cultural phenomenons that uh i would say this whole country has ever produced which is mardi gras indians mm-hmm. which is a phenomenon that still exists to this day i was in new orleans last year the overlook film festival which we mentioned up top that i work with is in new orleans and uh, last time we were there, there was a, there was a Mardi Gras Indian parade. Um, and it's this beautiful tradition that came from when enslaved people would escape, you know, from various plantations in Louisiana, the, the native people of the area of the region would hide them. And so, like, there be- became a lot of cross-cultural exchange mm-hmm. between those two groups of people. And over time... Um, You know, like uh, formerly enslaved people and like free black people in New Orleans started doing these parades where they would dress up as, quote unquote, Indians, sort of in in tribute to uh, to these people who were their allies. Yeah. And it and it became this like really huge thing that, like I said, still exists to this day where these people spend all year hand beating these uh, go, go. If you're not familiar with it and you're listening to this Google Mardi Gras Indians right now. They're the most amazing, beautiful, huge peacocking costumes with like feathers and mm-hmm. beads and rhinestones and everything. And the and and there's like these groups of guys that once a year go out in the street and just parade out in their outfits that they made and they meet up with other groups of guys and talk shit about who has better outfits. And I think it's just like <laughs> the coolest tradition. Yeah, I think it it's so cool. And it's documented in always for pleasure. And yeah, it's just a kind of movie that yeah, it's, it's philosophy on life. is one that I need to be reminded of sometimes and do believe in, which is that mm. life is for the living.
0: There you have it. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah I mean, the thing that, that was, <laughs> the thing that was striking to me about this one, you know, I was aware of the, this tradition, um, from Treme, which I feel mm-hmm. like somehow is still a show that like not enough people know about and have watched. um, so I knew about it, but I'm watching this documentary for, for the first time. This was one of my other first time watches on your list. And I'm thinking about like, OK, who where the fuck had this ever been seen outside of New Orleans in 1978? Mm. Like, I feel like he, this he was capturing something that was probably not really well known outside of that yeah. area at that time.
1: I always hesitate to say that anything was the first without doing research, but I, I I have to imagine that it was new to a lot of people when they saw this.
0: Yeah, so like, can you imagine being being down there and being and like capturing this for for the world to see? Is like, Mm -hmm. but but yet it never the film is so so light and immersed and casual that it also doesn't have that sense of like anthropology that 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 might be right. really easy to slip into it's just present in in the way that his best mm-hmm. stuff is
1: yeah I, you know and it's it, in a way brings us all the way back around to the meetings of anna because this is another movie where technique and content are matched beautifully only you know
0: you the know whole what?
2: movie is people like drinking and dancing in parades and then recipes. Like, there's literally <laughs> nothing here to oh, yeah, not dude. enjoy. There's yes. nothing here that's <laughs> not fun. I, rec- I said I recommended uh Shaolin at one point in one of our earlier shows. I also recommended Garlic is as, as good as Ten Mothers at one point. Mm-hmm. Another one of his, you know, Louisiana movies. Les Blank is my fucking hero, man. Yeah. Like there is just, if you've never seen any of his movies, there's literally nothing here to not enjoy. Yeah. There's nothing complicated. There's not, it's, you know, sometimes I think a lot of people feel like documentaries are going to make you think sometimes. Make you, you know, make you what feel bad about something? I don't know. Or like feel like home work. movies are just, <clears throat> yeah, you know, they're like they're they're like what Weissman movies should be. Anyway, let's carry on. <laughs> great, great um, choice.
1: Yeah, this movie, all it's going to make you want to do is like eat and maybe walk around in the street drinking a beer. There we have <laughs> it. <laughs> That's. There we have it.
0: All right, Katie, thank you for that magnificent top five. Such a good list. Um, Now let's let's find out about the big doings of the entertainment business in the year 1978. Here is Mike with the Hollywood Minute.
2: It was Vietnam versus Vietnam at the Oscars in 78 with Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter facing off against Hal Ashby's Coming Home in several major categories. Deer Hunter took the prizes for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actor Christopher Walken. Coming Home won trophies for Best Actor John Voight in his pre-Lunatic days, and Best Actress <laughs> Jane Fonda. No shit, man. Well-deserved. As well as Best Original Screenplay. The two movies were pitted against each other philosophically and politically after years of the industry shying away from that war altogether. And if you'd like to hear more about that, check out friend of the show, Brian Rafferty's podcast, Do We Get to Win This Time?
0: Yeah. The
2: big Hollywood gossip story of 78 was the fall of agent-turned-Columbia Pictures president David Beagleman, who resigned in February after embezzling tens of thousands of dollars from the company via forged check, including one to Oscar winner Cliff Robertson. So he wrote a check to Cliff Robertson that then he
0: check-cashed himself? No, he, yes. Yeah, he forged Cliff Robertson's signature on the back of the check from Columbia Pictures, cashed it himself, man. pocketed the money. That was that was Bagelman's wow. uh that was his swindle.
1: Yeah. God, those were that was the golden age of scamming man
0: checks. You, woo. You could kite a check of like people were just kiting checks on Fridays for weekend money. Like it was a, Truly, it was a yeah. much more innocent time in terms of scamming money. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: In September
2: George Lucas purchased purchased a parcel of land in Marin County, California, which would become Skywalker Ranch. And maybe that purchase would explain the existence of that November
0: Star Wars holiday special. Katie, uh what do you think of the old holiday special?
1: Um, I think that it is uh I've seen it once sober and once high, and I liked it much better the second time.
0: Fair. <laughs> Very good. <laughs>
1: It's not fun to watch sober. It's just boring. It is. The year's biggest (laughs) box
2: office hit was Grease, which brought in $159 million domestic, all while star John Travolta's 1977 smash Saturday Night Fever was bringing in another $75 million. Travolta's been rich uh, since then. Yeah. Right? Pretty, Pretty much. Yep. Yep. Good for him. Superman the movie was a close second. It was the most expensive movie ever made to that point with a 55 million dollar budget, wow. including 3.7 million to Marlon Brando for less than 10 minutes of screen time. Still slumming it. They got a deal. <laughs> Fuck that. Brando's yeah. deal also included 11.75% of the gross profits. And you know what? Never mind. He was compensated. <laughs> yes, you know he
1: was. what? Yes, he was. Yeah. Nice work
2: if you can get it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Back half of that
2: deal really puts a whole other perspective on that. Sure does. Sure does. Yeah. Yeah. You can get a lady to bring you a Claire's Fresh every morning with that kind of money. (laughs) The year's other big box office uh, hits included National Lampoon's Animal House, Heaven Can Wait, Jaws 2, and Revenge of the Pink Panther. America was really... Mm-hmm. in decline. What Joe Bob Briggs affectionately dubbed Redneck Cinema was out in full force with Every Which Way But Loose and Hooper coming in at number four oh, yeah. and number six, respectively. Yep, And in 10th place was the aforementioned Halloween, which brought in a grand total of $70 million worldwide on a $300,000 budget. Ooh. Ooh. That's, there's, there's somebody else who's been rich since nineteen. Yeah.
1: <laughs> John Carpenter doesn't have to do shit if he doesn't feel like it. He
2: doesn't have to do shit. And does not Anything he does for you is a gift.
1: It's true. <laughs> <laughs> 1978
2: was the big fade out for several cinema greats, including Duck Soup and Some Came Running Screenwriter, author Sheikman, The Great Dictator co star Jack Oakey, and Catherine McGuire, who played the ingenue for Buster Keaton in both Sherlock Jr. and The Navigator. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's one of those, like, don't necessarily know the name, but you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gaslight star Charles Boyer died in 78. No, he didn't.
0: Mm. Boom. Hey. Gaslight
1: joke. Oh, god damn it.
2: All right. <laughs>
1: Took me a second.
2: As did actor and singer Louis Prima, bad movie icon Ed Wood, Oscar winner Gig Young, the great Robert Shaw, star of Jars, The Sting, and the taking of Pelham 123. Ugh.
0: Yeah, nice. What a nice run on your nice way out, run. though, you gotta yep, say. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep, yep. You yep. know?
2: And legendary novelist and screenwriter Lee Brackett, who died two weeks after finishing her draft of The Empire Strikes Back, capping off a career that also included The Big Sleep, Rio Bravo, and The Long Goodbye. What like, a cool damn. idea to get the Rio Bravo yeah. lady to do your Empire Strikes Back movie, right? yeah. That's yeah. a good yeah, idea. A great idea. Yeah, yeah. 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 well yeah, done. that's... So we're, to, we, long we're really talking about some rich people here, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, yep. they earned it. And in June of 78, Hogan's hero star, Bob Crane was bludgeoned to death in Scottsdale, Arizona, when on tour with a dinner theater production called Beginner's Luck. Mm-hmm. The case yeah. remains unsolved, but the mystery around his death and the less savory details of Crane's life were turned into the 2002 film autofocus directed by <gasps> blue collars, Paul Schrader.
0: Hey!
1: That's a nifty
2: bit of circularity for you, and that's your Hollywood Minute.
0: All right, Katie Rife, you ready to do a lightning round?
1: Oh boy, here we go. What are my options?
0: <laughs> Here's how it works. I'm going to feed you a list of titles of 1978 movies pulled from John Willis' Screen World Film Annual for 78. You can comment briefly on each or pass if you wish. Uh, and here we go. Walter Hill's The Driver.
1: Oh, big, big, big fan of the driver. Woo! It's a cr- this movie. If anybody ever tells you that everything's on streaming, no, not the driver.
0: It's not. It's <laughs> fucked up. Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers.
1: Oh, this is this one is high on the list of remakes that are better than the original. Shout out to Philip Kaufman.
0: Killer of Sheep.
1: Oh, I love. Oh, oh, you like. A moment and there's a scene in this film where one of the characters he's holding like a warm teacup and he holds it up to his face it's such a simple little moment but I think about it all the time
0: the other John Carpenter adjacent movie of 1978 was The Eyes of Laura Mars
1: oh you know i never seen The Eyes of Laura Mars maybe I shouldn't admit that on a podcast
0: you can admit whatever you like Um <laughs> Brian De Palma's The Fury
1: ooh yeah Uh yeah I like early De Palma a lot. That's it. That's all I got for you.
0: <laughs> that's a that's a telling statement though, in its own way. Um, George A. Romero's <laughs> Martin.
1: Oh, Martin! Yeah, I almost put this one on the list. I love Martin. Mm. Um, they're. Martin you know how we were talking earlier about how so many movies want to be Halloween Mm. a lot of movies want to be Martin but they Mm. don't know it because not that many people have seen (laughs) Martin but it does a thing that lots of movies try to do which is like be very ambiguous with the supernatural elements in a way that like like no matter how you interpret that film it's pretty edgy but like I'll Mm, a mm. lot of films try to do that trick that Martin does and just can't pull it off. I wish more people need to see it. I think it's back in home video circulation now, so that's good.
0: There's a very recent 4K that I purchased and watched Martin for the first time about three or four months ago, and it fucking knocked my socks off.
1: Brilliant, right?
0: Great movie. Great movie. Damien, The Omen 2.
1: Oh, I, uh, I'm behind on The Omen movies. I've only ever seen the first one, so pass. Magic. Oh, the Anthony Hopkins dummy movie. Hell yes. Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Next. <laughs>
0: the great Joe Dante's Piranha.
1: Oh, Piranha. I mean, this movie's okay. Like it's not my favorite Joe Dante movie, but I just really like love him as like, as a person. He he's incredible. He made, uh, I was talking about found footage earlier, uh, not many people know this about joe dante but he is the father of all found footage mixtapes because he made the movie orgy hell yes in 1969 1970 and uh god bless him for that we salute you joe dante
0: from the bestseller by robin cook coma was released in 1978
1: oh i haven't seen
0: that one Next, cheech and chong's up in smoke
1: oh the cheech and chong movies i like cheech and chong movies fine they're funny the I mean they're very much riding on personality, but like I don't know, they're stoner movies. What else do you need?
0: Ralph Bakshi's take on Lord of the Rings.
1: Oh, um, this is <laughs> so funny. I've seen all the like, um. Like, uh, you know, adult cancel Ralph Bakshi movies, but I've never seen the one that's like socially acceptable, the Lord of the Rings one. Like, I've seen heavy traffic, but I of course, never seen
0: the Lord of the Rings, no. Katie's seen Coonskin, but she knows nothing of the Lord of the Rings. Oh, no,
1: I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen that one. I I, I've, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Ooh. I don't know. I can't. I can't.
0: Paul Mazursky's an unmarried woman. Pat? Huh? Sam Peckinpah's <laughs> convoy.
1: Oh, okay, all right. <clears throat> uh, I have a controversial opinion about Sam Peckinpah. Ready? And it's, I, I like him better the deeper he went into his alcoholism, the more. I like more <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Just- I know that's bad, but, like, it's true. Again. (laughs) I like this movie better than The Wild Bunch. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) You didn't get drunk with him. You didn't get in a bar fight because of him. It's fine.
1: Okay. It's
0: not not your grandpa. I know. It's one of those
1: things. I feel like I'm saying, like, yeah, let him him get cirrhosis. He was better for it. But, I mean, (laughs) the fact is is that I like his deep drunk period movies the best.
0: Robert Zemeckis' I Want to Hold Your Hand.
1: Oh, I've seen this one. Um I think the Zemeckis revival that's happening right now is very interesting um because I've always sort of thought of him as sort of a quintessential boomer director in an mm-hmm. uncool way, mm-hmm. but I guess he's a quintessential boomer director in a cooler way than I thought. And this is uh definitely an example of that.
0: And finally, Yeah,
1: give me some trash, dude. I'm, on, I'm, dude. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm
0: I'm 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 s- I'm doing a trash scan. Um oh, Ice Castles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> ice castle just makes me think of my babysitter shout out to my cousin cindy who had ice castles on vhs and would put it on all the time shout out cindy what's up girl
0: <laughs> and there we have it there's your lightning round well done katie uh katie where can people follow you on social media and read your work
1: um. Well, honestly, I have a Twitter, but I rarely post on there anymore. Sure. It's at sure. Rife with Katie. I do re go through DMs occasionally, so you can reach me that way. Um, but I, I'm more active on Instagram. Uh, Future Schlock. Is, Outstanding. Uh, my name on there. Yeah, I, I've kind of retreated to Instagram because the whole Twitter thing has gotten a little
0: depressing depressing um, it's been soul sucking um deadening for a
1: while but, but i think it's just because i actually did take a break and then i came back and i was like oh my god you are all such miserable people <laughs> and and then the magic was gone you know
0: there we have it uh i too am <laughs> on instagram at fun city cinema uh jason dash bailey on blue sky and letterboxd where you can find under my list the top fives for every episode of the show mike where can people find you oh you're 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 muted
1: yeah you're like muted or something
0: i was just recording that shit for myself
2: (laughs) i don't actually want to be contacted on social media (laughs)
0: how's that sound And of course, if you like the show and think other people might like it too, please, please leave us a rating and or a review on your podcatcher of choice. There are just an overabundance of movie podcasts out there. So your recommendations really do help us out. Mike, before we go, what is your parting recommendation for the year of our Lord
2: 1978? I have got to go with the chance of Jimmy Blacksmith. We've been on an Australia run lately. We We have had a bunch of Australian guests. We have. uh, Which wasn't really intentional but has worked out great. And yep. so I've been watching Australia movies mm-hmm. and I had actually never seen uh Chan and Jimmy Blacksmith before. I watched it for the first time, maybe a month ago or so. And it was, it is great. It is a, it's 1978. And to be honest with you, it's sort of, it felt like Australia's roots mm. for quite a bit of it. You know, it's mm-hmm. a period piece. It's about an Aboriginal guy who is trying to make his way in the Australian world uh, mm-hmm. of about 100 years ago, I think it's around the turn of the the um, 19th into 20th century, and all the white people are just fucking garbage, you know, it's a very, it feels a lot like Roots to me, it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it looks like it in a lot of ways to be on like an Australian Roots in a lot of ways, but it doesn't have, it doesn't end the same way. Mm. Uh uh it, it's it's at some point in the movie it sort of becomes australia's falling down uh <laughs> when jimmy blacksmith has had fucking enough Daddy uh knows. and starts chanting and it's just like you know there's you know in the other in the episodes we've had previously this season where we've had you know alexandra heller nichols and and um and blake and you know we've had other like several Australian guests on. And there's been a lot of sort of conversation about the way the white people there talk about the indigenous people of Australia and, you know, sort of how that in some way, you know, is relatable to Americans and in other ways is not, you know, is Mm -hmm. different because it's both Aboriginal and colorism is sort of wrapped up. There's just sort of, there's, we've been digging into some of these things with some of the movies that we've been watching this year And this one really like gets into it in a way that feels very late 70s, but feels no less sort of honest and exploration than blue collar. You know, like Mm -hmm. Richard Pryor was already rich by the time they made that movie. He wasn't a blue collar person, but that shit feels real when you're watching it. You know, you can tell that they've experienced these things and Chan of Blink, Jimmy Blacksmith just feels really lived in and really genuine. Um, and to be honest, like them white ladies deserved some of that shit. Maybe okay. not all of it, okay. but, but they earned a little bit of that. I mean, they earned, he might have hit him with the other side of the knife instead of the sharp side or something, but like they were really fucking mean to him. And I don't mind a little revenge. I like seventies movies. How about you?
0: Uh, I'm going to go with uh, a little piece of magic called American hot wax, which is from uh, a really terrific and unsung director named Floyd Mutrooks. Um, this is a, it sounds like a movie that you should have seen and heard of and watched a million times because it is, uh, it's a movie about Alan Freed, who was sort of the, the disc jockey who, oh, the
2: DJ, yeah,
0: who, who sort of introduced and popularized toy, coined the phrase rock and roll. Um, and it's, it's kind of a sort of one crazy weekend thing that sort of fictionalizes and compresses, but it's, it's really, it's fast and it's funny uh it loves the music it's um it loves him uh the lead uh, the the role of alan freed is played by a terrific actor named tim mcintyre who should have been a star and wasn't uh who some whisper is the illegitimate son of orson wells and when you see him in this movie you think maybe maybe um, <laughs> but cool. like You know, it's somehow like Fran Drescher and Jay Leno are both in it. And they're somehow both not insufferable because that's what a great director Floyd Muntrux is. Uh, (laughs) Mutrux, sorry. Um, Lorraine Newman is in it as like a a would-be songwriter um, who just is trying to get her to get people to record her songs. It just it it pulses with such affection for this era and for this music and for the people who made it and for Alan Freed and what he was trying to do. The reason that this movie sort of disappeared is that like so many movies of this era, it had all of this music that was only licensed for theatrical and television and it's would be so prohibitively expensive to put it out on home video that it's never really had like a proper home video release But if you go looking for it on like a YouTube or a Vimeo, you might find it. And it's an hour and a half. It's a 91 minute movie. And it's just 91 minutes of joy. Um, If I may also propose a double header, this one's much easier to get. There's a terrific movie called FM, which came out the same year in 78 and it is about a, it's a contemporary radio story that feels very much like sort of the movie pilot version of WKRP. So, uh, recommend both of those, but especially American hot wax. And, uh, that is, is my big recommendation. Thank you again, Katie.
1: Well, thank you for having me. This is really fun. I love when I get to kind of just, I don't know. I love talking about form. I really, really like talking about it, (laughs) clearly. And so when I get to make a funny organizing principle like this, like it just really gets me excited. So
0: thank you. There we go. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. Sweet and clear. It was a very.